Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, this is Sean Kuypier, host of In the Land of Lies. Since the last episode of the podcast premiered, a lot has happened regarding Michael Chappell and his fight for freedom. These bonus episodes are meant to bring the listeners up to speed on what we've learned since the podcast ended and where things currently stand. In the future, I'll be bringing you updates just like this as we learn more. For information on this and all of my other cases, find me on social media at SeanKuypeOfficial or visit SeanKuype.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean Kipe. From Imperative Entertainment, this is In the Land of Lies. Henry, it's been almost a year, a little more than a year since the podcast premiered. And I remember sitting down with you and talking the very first time that I interviewed you. And I said, you know, one of the things that's going to happen as this thing grows and, and grows legs and spreads, not just in Gwinnett County, but other counties, the, the country, across the world, however far reaching it ends up being, I said, you know, whether it's three months, six months, a year, two years, whatever, people are going to come forward when they finally hear this. They have some kind of information that they're going to contact and reach out to us. And we're going to hear things. You're going to hear things that you never knew existed. Um, and I would say that's happened. Yeah, it's certainly true. Really, from from the initial episode, you know, people started contacting us. Some of that stuff we were able to use in the podcast because they contacted us, like, really from the get-go. But then, uh, like you said, I mean, people have contacted us from all over the country and all over the world, really. Uh, and people have contacted us with significant information, even up until recently. And certain things that, you know, I didn't even know existed. I mean, it's pieces of the puzzle that, you know, we thought would never be solved. Things that we thought we would never know the answer to uh, that people called us and said, hey, yeah, I was there and this is what happened. And uh, and it's been significant. It's uh, some of that. A lot of that information has been used for the uh, court filings that have been done in Mike's on Mike's behalf. 
Uh, so it's not been just significant for the podcast and the story, but it's significant for Mike's legal battle. And that has happened quite a bit. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, we're going to get into all that, obviously. Uh, but the whole point of this bonus, you know, update episode is really to update people because so much has happened and things have really moved so, so quickly, even to try to do you know, we talked about a season two of the podcast or things are happening so fast at this point or have been largely. Um, and, and we thought this was kind of the best way to do it. So we have some notes here and, and I see multiple contacts from Gwinnett County Police Department reached out to say Mike Chapel had been set up. You and I have talked about this, but tell, tell me and tell kind of the listeners what that really means and when we say that you know Gwinnett County police officers reached out and said yeah he was set up yeah well there's there's a number of people on the record from even back in the day that said you know that there was information that Mike had been set up of course you know we talked significantly to uh Steve Mitchell you know he he talked about the things he talked about Mike being set up before the murder of Imogene Thompson, um, I found a, a report from a, you know, Gwinnett County police officer that indicated that a, uh, a an inmate at either Hall County Jail or the Gwinnett County Jail that had told the police officer a year prior to Mike's arrest that, hey, Mike is going to be set up by, you know, Gwinnett County Police Department for something. And then after the arrest, that guy wrote the wrote a letter to this guy. I said police officer, who was actually a sheriff deputy, wrote a letter to the sheriff deputy and said, "Hey, see, I told you so." And uh, and so you know we've we've had significant contact with other folks, uh, including former police officers and and people connected to Gwinnett County that that said, "Yeah, I mean this this is what was happening. We were told this and we were told that, but." you know, these are the things that were happening on the street. And uh, what we were hearing from the street is that Mike was being set up. Yeah. And for a little clarity, what you're saying is that an inmate said that Mike Chapel was going to be set up in some way, somehow told a sheriff's deputy that my first question is how would an inmate know that? Like, do you have any, any other information on that? Well, speculation would be that he he was close with or involved with people that were involved in what would become the setup. I mean, there's definitely there's definitely information that criminals and uh, drug dealers and other people were working with elements of the you know Gwinnett County Police Department in several capacities. So. I would, you know, I would speculate that that person uh, was part of that. I I can't tell you for certain. I, I don't know. I just know that that report exists. And um, have you seen that report? I have. Yes. And so the person that told you that was. Well, no, the, that, that this particular story I'm telling you is read from the report. And it's which the report? officer. It's the officer that, that wrote the report that the letter was sent to. Gotcha. Yeah. And I, and then gets a letter uh, after Mike is arrested and says, see, I told you so. Exactly. I mean, whatever happens with, with that kind of information, I mean, that report, like, you know, that to me, just telling me that 
someone else ought to be interested in that. They should have been in 1993. They should have been in 1995 or through all these various trials. It was, I mean, has that ever been brought forward in court before that, you know, to even look further into that? Well, you know, keep in mind, a lot of this information was sealed by, you know, Judge Bishop at the request of Danny Porter. And, and you know, when you start going through the, the sealed boxes of evidence, there's stuff like that. There, there's stuff indicating that other officers were involved in the drug trafficking. There's a lot more information about, uh, you know, what transpired at Morgan's house with uh, Bodie Hurst and J.P. Morgan. And so there's a lot of information it, that was sealed that really, you know, looking at it now, you, you ask, like, what was the justification for this being sealed in the first place? Because it's not, it, you know, it, it wasn't um, national security information. And, and really, it went directly to Mike's defense. Mike always said, hey, I was investigating rogue elements of the Gwinnett County Police Department. I was investigating these officers who were involved in drug trafficking and other nefarious activity. And, and lo and behold, here it is, you know, GCPD was well aware of it. Um, they didn't tell the public what they told the public is Mike is a conspiracy theorist and he's making up this grand conspiracy to, you know, cover up his own crime. But the truth of the matter is, you know, they had the information. They knew that there were in fact dirty police officers. They knew that, uh, JP Morgan committed suicide and that there was, evidence of wrongdoing on his computers and that another police officer came into his home that night in the presence of, you know, GCPD brass and destroyed that information. Yeah. Well, you, and you said something a minute ago, I wanted to touch on, um, before we get too deep in the woods there, but we had somebody else come forward, you know, part of what Mike said, uh, after he was arrested, which you just mentioned was, look, I, I've been kind of doing this investigation on my own. Uh, I'm talking to my sources on the street, my, you know, my guys that are drug dealers that I get information from and which every cop has, you know, I would imagine who, who does that kind of work. But, um, you know, said I'm hearing a lot of these same names. JP Morgan was one of those. That's how Mike ever was turned on to him being into involved in the, the drug trade in whatever fashion that he was. But he said, you know, I have all these, this box of files and tapes and, you know, recorded conversations, um, all this stuff from my sources. I've got film, I've got developed photographs, all this, this evidence that I've been collecting. It's in a box in my trunk that was taken into evidence when Mike was arrested, then it disappeared. So really at that point, it was Mike's word against Gwinnett County's and, and Danny Porter's. They're like, I, we don't know what happened with it. We don't know what's in it. So how can we verify what you're telling us is true? And it sort of gets kicked to the curb, right? But we had somebody contact us who actually could verify that that box of evidence existed. And it's kind of a, a crazy, I, I want to say a crazy story, how that came together. And, and I'll just say that you know, this, this person was an officer at Gwinnett County Police Department. We've chosen to uh, not identify her because she is part of this upcoming hearing. We're going to call her Officer Maria. That's what we've been affectionately referring to her as. But tell me, Henry, how she came into this and, and what information she had that was 
turned out to be so important to Mike. Yeah, and it's one of those wild stories. And she didn't really understand the significance of it. She actually called me to tell me about her experience with GCPD. Uh, you know, she essentially was railroaded herself. And I've read all of the investigation files and the post files. And, and certainly, in my opinion, you know, she was railroaded. And I think uh, anybody looking into uh, her case uh, would come to the same conclusion. But that's what she called me about, you know, really to, to tell me what GCPD was really like uh, back in 1993 and in the early 90s. And in that conversation, she said, you know, she, she told me, well, and, you know, when I went to the Gwinnett County Police Headquarters uh, for my final meeting with Chief Wayne Bolden, I knew they were railroading me at that point. So I decided to go ahead and clean out my patrol car. So I pulled up next to it in my personal vehicle. It was parked basically right next to Mike Chappell's patrol car. Now it's back behind the headquarters at this point in the secured lot. So this is after the second search of Michael's vehicle. And, uh, and the date of this is actually uh, May 9th which is the day before J.P. Morgan committed suicide. And she said that uh, she cleaned, she quickly cleaned out her patrol car and there was a black bag in the trunk of her patrol car that she didn't recognize, but she didn't take the time to look through it. She just threw everything into her personal vehicle and, you know, went and had the meeting. But, you know, ultimately she cleaned out her vehicle. She took that black bag. She went home. And two days later, Sergeant Klein, who happens to be the, the person who testified that he lost the evidence that, that you were talking about that was in the box in Mike's patrol car, he lost that evidence due to human error. Uh, that Steve Klein and her captain showed up at her house asking her if she had anything that uh, any investigation files that didn't belong to her. And at that point, she felt like she was being railroaded uh, by Gwinnett County Police Department. She didn't want them on her property and she told them to leave. Uh, ultimately, she told them she didn't know what they were talking about because at the time she really didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, but as she told me this story, she says, so later like that weekend or the next weekend, her and her sister started going through her personal belongings and they went through that bag and lo and behold, it was Mike's investigation files. It was those film canisters. It was those micro cassette recordings that you talked about. And she specifically identified that she saw investigation files that had JP Morgan's name on it uh, and other officers. So it's it's the missing investigation files that you uh, that you just described that Steve Klein claimed he lost when leaving the precinct, heading to the headquarters due to human error. So it proves that he lied because it was at the headquarters in somebody else's patrol car. That means somebody had to put it there. Well, I, I mean, I think there could be an argument made that it was accidentally put uh, in the wrong car. I think that's, you know, pretty careless if that's the case. Um, and that's, you know, evidence in a case like this where you're accusing a police officer of, of murder, uh, murdering a civilian, you know, any, any kind of evidence or anything deemed evidence should have been 
should have been handled with a you know with greater care yeah and so but i think my issue with that and I, I understand that 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 would be a you know, an explanation. Well, it was an accident. We accidentally placed it in our car. And quite frankly, that's kind of what I assumed at first. But then when you go to look at it, first of all, it was in her car. It was found in her car two weeks after it was lost. Uh, the other thing is that uh, Jack Burnett claimed that he had film to be developed on May 10th, the very next day that he had film to be developed that was found in Mike's patrol car. Now that film was never developed and that film was never provided in evidence. So, you know, to me, they had been taking things out of that evidence cache and they were storing it somewhere where they could get to it. And they didn't expect officer Maria to go back into service so they felt like her car was inactive. And in my opinion, and, and again, this is just speculation, but in my opinion, that's where they were storing it while they scrubbed it, while they went through the files and scrubbed them. I think it's a bit of a leap. Um, it's, it's speculation. And I don't think that we can say that's what happened. That's, that's sort of filling in some gaps um, sort of to fit a narrative. I think a bit, whether that, ha- you know, it's a possibility, whether that happened. Maybe, maybe that is exactly what happened, but I think it could have been, yeah, that could have been the human error that it ended up in the wrong car, but that, none of that takes away from the fact that these files did exist and that they ended up with officer Maria. And, you know, that, that proves at least, you know, at least that Mike was conducting this investigation. She did see JP Morgan's name. I agree with you. I am, I am totally speculating. But my, my problem with the saying, well, that was the human error. It accidentally got placed in the wrong car. The uh, files that Jack Burnett wanted to develop would have come out of those files essentially after it was lost due to human error. So you really can't have it both ways. They could not have lost it in route to the headquarters but then taking th- taking things out of it at the headquarters in order to develop it, and then oh, we lost it all again. That you know that that so the human error is bullshit. <laughs> and I mean, a- you add know, that to say, the stack. You can say mine is speculation, and I'm happy to acknowledge that. I'm I'm happy to say I don't know that for a fact. But you know, the human error I do know is BS. We've got more coming up after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. I'm talking to Henry Ball about Michael Chappell and all the things that have happened since the end of the podcast. Before the the last commercial break, we talked about Officer Maria finding all of the evidence that Mike Chappell had in his trunk, this private investigation that he was doing, this sort of secretive, what they say, secretive investigation that he was doing uh, involving officers within his own police department that were involved in drug trafficking and in various ways in the drug trade. We also have numerous other people that have come forward. And and one of the people I want to talk about now, Henry, is Amanda. We're not going to use last names because uh, all of this information is part of Mike's habeas. Now, some of this can be talked about, obviously, what we're telling you now. But Some of it we've got to sort of keep under wraps for the time being because we don't want to uh, in any way interfere with this habeas filing. Um, And as we tell you more, you'll you'll understand, I think, a little bit better. But a, a woman named Amanda came forward and she told us some information about Mike Chappell on the night of Emma Jean Thompson's murder. And... You know, one of the one of the big narrative points of this this entire story and Mike's alibi were his actions that night. He was at the firehouse at, you know, this time took the dispatch call at 956, left, stopped by his gym at approximately 10 p.m. Uh, and then continued on to the Arden Road dispatch call and then clocked out afterwards. So that's that's his story. His alibi has not changed in 30 years. Of course, the prosecution has maintained that he left the firehouse much earlier. I think we've proven at this point that that's not true based on all of the eyewitnesses and hearing the, uh, the firehouse chatter in the background of this car. What you could assume is some sort of chatter. He certainly wasn't out on the side of the road having just killed, you know, in the rain, having just killed Imogene Thompson. It's clear you can hear that on the tape. Correct. Um, But Amanda contacts us and says, I saw Mike that night. Yeah. So much like uh, Dana Blunt, she she was at the Iron World gym that night. Now, she had not yet gone into the gym. And at the time, she was a 15, 16-year-old. They lived in the neighborhood where the gym was. And, you know, she reports that her home life was uh, not really ideal back in uh, the early 90s. And, you know, so they spent a lot of time, her and her sister did, kind of walk in the streets of Beaufort. You know, they kind of know everybody that was around back then. And on that particular night, uh, she said that she was approaching the gym, hoping that every everyone had gone home because she had her sister's key to the gym, um, which she usually would go into the gym after they closed. There was a lot of people that were key holders 
that could go into the gym anytime they wanted. And Amanda liked to work out when nobody was there. So she would often go in, you know, you know, 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night when nobody was around and do her little workout. She was uh, planning to do that that night. As she approached the gym, there were still people there. Uh, and she saw Mike approaching and, you know, thinking that Mike would just make her go home or take her home as he had done many times because she was, you know, only 15 years old. Yeah, she's under, she's, she's a kid and he's a cop. I mean, you're going to hide behind the bushes. Yeah, exactly. So, so she hid behind the big bell at the church that's right there on the corner, was right there on the, well, the church is still there, but the bell is not there. I do have pictures of it from that time frame. So she kind of ducked behind the bell as Mike pulled up. She, and she watched Mike, you know, run in and she said he was in for just a minute or two and then came back out jumped in his car and left. And she said that was right at 10 o'clock or just a minute or two after 10 o'clock. And, um, and so she's of course, given us a sworn statement to that. Of course, that matches the time that, you know, Dana Blunt and her husband, uh, you know, signed their affidavits for. So, uh, so we felt that was significant and that that has been used, uh, by the attorney with the uh, habeas. Yeah. I met Amanda uh, right around the same time you did. And, and I believe we met her sister too, right? I, I think we talked to her sister. Yeah, we did. And, you know, I don't know this woman. I just met her recently, you know, well, relatively recently. It's been months now, but I don't know her past I, other than what she's told me. I don't know anything else about her. I don't think you do either, but I, I consider myself a pretty good judge of character. And, I, you know, I believe her. I believe what she tells us. She's not. She doesn't have anything to gain from this, from this story about, hey, I saw Mike and it was at 10 o'clock and here's, you know, she has all these, these details about it. She's, she's not winning a prize. There's no reward that she's up for, you know? So why would you come and put yourself in the middle of this? Unless it was, you know, for the reasons that she told us, listen, I, this guy, I saw him. And if that's going to prevent him from stand, you know, spending any more time in prison for a murder that he may not have committed. Then I'm, I, I got to tell you, and she was nervous about telling us this stuff. And it was, I don't want to say we had to prod her or like pull it out of her, but we really did have, have to spend some time making her feel comfortable that, you know, she could tell us and, and we could be trusted, which is something I've found is, is all too common with the people we've spoken to that they're kind of like, man, look, I've tried to tell this before. Or I've never told this before because I didn't think I could trust these police officers that were around at the time in Gwinnett County uh, or in Amanda's case, you know, she kind of was around and connected and seeing, I think, right, some of these officers like J.P. Morgan, they were hanging out with people that she knew that were in into drug dealing and, and heavy drug users. You know, like I said. You know, you know, or like you said, you know, no, I don't, I don't know her background. I've gotten to know her a little bit, you know, since then, but I do find her credible and, you know, her statement speaks for itself. And, and again, you know, her statements being reviewed by a judge. And I think the judge is going to, you know, weigh in the credibility of her statement. And, and, you know, my guess is, is he's going to find it credible. Well, and, and Mike's attorney, uh, obviously they find her credible and, and I already has found her credible. Correct. And, uh, they're, 
they're smarter than both of us combined. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, uh, we're going to go to commercial. We'll be back. In the ninth and tenth episode of In the Land of Lies, we discovered probably some of the most important information I think that came out of that entire podcast, which was when we visited the courthouse to view evidence. And how that came about was really by, the, you know, the district attorney's office had already really become aware of us. And this podcast and the fact that all of these people were starting to, you know, this outpouring of support for Mike and people even who were kind of undecided at that point, right. Were were saying, Hey, something sounds really fishy with this. It doesn't sound like it's this open and shut case. You guys uh, need to, to take a look at this because, you know, these guys, Sean and Henry, they're, they're bringing this information out that like, it is credible and they're, and they're showing documentation and they're showing, you know, support and they're having these witnesses come forward that were never interviewed or were never taken seriously. And, you know, that, that sort of outpouring of support, I think made the, the district attorney's office, thankfully, take this seriously. And they allowed us in to look at, you know, I said, I wanted to see the raincoat. I wanted to hear the Arden Road dispatch call, which they, provided showed us a raincoat and the other item was the gun the 38 caliber gun right which and which which gun was it henry yeah, <laughs> because well, there were like four we have to be specific about which gun because there were there are so many in question but uh this was the gun that supposedly found by uh peanut cantrell and uh it was supposedly found on the side of the road turned in and Danny Porter told you that, you know, that that gun was uh, identified by Kelly Fight as likely the murder weapon, Kelly Fight being the GBI uh, ballistics expert. Uh, but he said, well, I couldn't testify to it in court because it, you know, was uh, all rusted out and, you know, the handle was missing and, it, you know, was unable to be fired. And, um, yeah, it was falling apart. It was yeah. in pieces. It was rusty. It couldn't, you couldn't even shoot it. That, that was the description that he gave, but he said, this is your murder weapon. Essentially. Stop um, looking. Stop looking. Yeah. That was, that was, um, what Danny Porter told me. And he's made that statement other times too. Correct. Um, so when we get to the courthouse, they show, you know, they had sent me the dispatch tape. They showed us the raincoat and then they brought out a 38 caliber gun, which was not the right gun. And we said, Hey, that serial number doesn't match. This is not it. They said, Oh, okay. And they go and get us another one, which is also not the 38 caliber pistol that we're, you know, that's in question here. And, you know, these guys said, this is, that's all we have. And they literally had someone go back to the evidence room one of the one of the officers uh, or investigators took us down into like the basement where the storage is for for evidence, right? For guns that are gun confiscated. Safe, everything, yeah, yeah. They looked to open the gun safe. This 
38 caliber pistol that has been referred to as the potential murder weapon by the GBI at that time and by Danny Porter could not be located. So that's a huge WTF, right? <laughs> you know, how do you just, totally. there's no records of it being destroyed. There's no records of it being sent to another division or back to GCPD. None of that. It just doesn't exist. So we kind of walked away really bummed out. And then, you know, a couple months later, uh, 11 Alive, a reporter for 11 Alive, starts picking up this story, goes to the district attorney's office, just as we did. And I, I think I said the courthouse uh, is where this was, but well, it, all in the, the same building. The district attorney's office is in the same building. Yeah. So this reporter goes to the uh, district attorney's office, asks for that same weapon, and they produce it. You know what I mean? Like, no explanation of where this was. No explanation of why it couldn't be produced for you and I. How do you explain that? <laughs> there has been no explanation. There seems to be a pattern over 30 years of selective evidence vanishing. And, you know, while this gun came back into existence... You know, it had it had literally vanished when you and I were were there looking for it, and you know the yellow rose vanished, and you know other other guns have vanished, and and other evidence has vanished, and we've got another uh, a significant example of that that has occurred just recently, and you know we're asking the judge, hey, you know you need to look at this. This is a pattern over thirty years of significant information that could be exculpatory information in this case just simply selectively disappears and and reappears at, at, yeah, at and random. in this case reappears <laughs> this is the first case of well not really uh because the dispatch tape reappeared right right yeah, yeah. so yeah and and part of me wonders you know if they provided that stuff to me and to us because they didn't really realize the magnitude or, or what we were going to be able to do with it what we were going to be able to glean from it. Um, you know, there's, there's that kind of wonder in my, in my head that <laughs> give this guy that whatever, what is, what do they know? Yeah. If they, if they really knew what they were given to us, they may not have, they may not have. Yeah. I mean, obviously none of these people were, were working really at Gwinnett County at the time of the murder or at the time of Mike's trial. So, um, the thing but, is, is we have documented evidence that that tape was requested an open records request, um, you know, in the intervening years. And Danny Porter told at least one person on the record that it no longer existed. And so its existence proves, obviously, that that was not true. Henry, probably one of the most important calls that we received since the podcast came out really it actually this started kind of before the podcast was finished because around the ninth or 10th episode you know we were trying to get a hold of anyone we could that might have information or family members of people related to this story uh, i spoke with michael thompson and amy parker and we were trying to look for dennis shelton and we couldn't find one person in particular, just to get her perspective on all this. 
And that was Michael Thompson's daughter. And of course, you know, if, if you remember, she was basically abandoned by her father, Michael Thompson, at a very young age. Her mother had passed away just a few weeks before her grandmother was killed, Imogene Thompson. And so she had a very rough upbringing. We've heard enough about Michael Thompson and his drug use in the podcast. I spoke to him and you can just kind of tell it wasn't probably the best environment for her growing up as a young girl and so much loss in such a short time at such a young age. But, I, you know, I did actually make contact with her and spoke with her, but uh, she wasn't at that time ready to go on record. She wasn't really ready to discuss this stuff. And she hadn't even heard any of the podcast. I think she just kind of shied away from it and wasn't, wasn't ready to, to face this stuff. But she came back around and contacted you and sort of told you, hey, I've listened to the podcast a couple times. I'm ready to clear some things up and I'm, I'm ready to face this and ready to talk. You know, that's, that's what happened. And I do have to say that in getting to know Paralee, I, uh, I, I was touched by her story. I, I felt like she was not just abandoned by her father, as you mentioned, but it was really a sanctioned abandonment. You know, we have documentation where, you know, Danny Porter actually dropped the uh, child support charges and back child support against Michael Thompson in, in exchange for his testimony against Mike Chappell. And Paralee reported to me that from the time before her grandmother passed or was murdered until she was 18 years old, Michael Thompson made one child support payment in the, in the, for the tune of $100 to support his child, who, as you mentioned, had lost her mother, lost her grandmother, and effectively lost her father because, you know, he abandoned her. And, uh, and so I was just really touched. I felt like she was collateral damage for Gwinnett County. They cast her aside because they wanted, you know, Michael Thompson to testify against Michael Chappell. That's exactly what he did. And her life, you know, was affected dramatically by that. Yeah. And I sat down and talked to Michael Thompson's daughter, Imogene Thompson's granddaughter, Paralee Goldman. Here's part of that conversation. How old were you when Imogene Thompson was murdered? I was seven years old. The last thing I remember is we had gone out shopping or something, just kind of spent the day together. And that's really the last memory I have. You had another loss not long before your grandmother. Tell me about that. Actually, it was 25 days prior to Imogene getting murdered. Uh, my mother passed away. It's, that's a lot of loss for a seven-year-old. It was. What was your relationship like with your dad, Michael Thompson? Um, unfortunately, not much at all. Um, and there actually wasn't much beforehand. I would say from the time that my mother died, give it about six months, and my father was out of my life completely for 11 years. No contact. I didn't know if he was dead or alive. Did he ever at any point talk to you about your grandmother, explain to you what happened or say, hey, do you have any questions about 
your grandmother or no um he he just told me that the cop did it i mean he mostly didn't say anything really and just if her name came up or whatever he would just cry i mean did you find that odd or did you find that not just that in specific but i mean how your father acted in general uh, about your your grandmother's death since you know the time that he did come back into my life i had like this i don't know feeling suspicion it's like he's running from something there's a unidentified guilt i feel like that he's carrying you hadn't listened to the podcast even for a while after it was out right, right. so you kind of had this feeling before you ever listened to it mhm so what what then made you feel that way or what do you think is the reason for him having a guilt or I mean did you before you heard the podcast um my other grandmother had said something about there was mention of his car being seen at the scene before or the night of and she mentioned like he had something to do with it or was involved in some way and I was like what <laughs> and that was before the podcast came mm-hmm. out this is a long time ago yeah this was really? probably like 2010 that's interesting i mean i know i obviously the information was out there we didn't make it up but i mean it's that your other grandmother was even aware of that and talking about that did you ever confront him with any of that stuff no um he never really talked to me about his past his childhood he's just like a a locked vault and it's like i've always been like you know i want to get to know you i haven't spent my life with you i don't know who you are so tell me who you are what yeah. makes you who you are you grew up thinking and hearing that mike chapel was the one who was responsible for your grandmother's death Yes. Um I don't even know if I know that I went to her funeral. I think it was like months later that I actually found out or a neighbor was telling me that it was a cop and that my grandmother's blood all I was told was her blood was found in a squad car and on his raincoat. That's all I was told. What do you feel now? I mean, you you heard the po- the same podcast that everyone else did, you know what I mean? It's not like I I didn't sit with you and say here here's some different information, here's why. I mean, what what were your feelings after hearing it? And and what are your feelings now as far as Mike Chappell's guilt? It's very head scratching and it's obvious listening to the podcast and and looking at the evidence that has come to light and hearing the other witness testimonies and things like that just that chapel was framed just i think for me mostly it was like a lot of the evidence was disregarded or you know 
one of the guns was destroyed right away that was found and it was like why would you do that why would you not test it why would you not investigate this or investigate that and that's why i have like linked arms with the chapel's innocent project and trying to get him free because i i believe he is innocent and and if he's innocent that means that somebody else did it and i want to know who because that was my grandmother the first thing is this chapel needs to get out of prison and be with his family and spend the rest of his life with his family i mean 30 years is a long time i mean next week i turn 38 and you know so that's the majority of my life he has been in prison and he can't get that time back nor can his family i was only seven so i didn't have a long relationship with imaging but but what relationship i did have is gone and the reason why i am taking a stand having this conversation with you even is because i might not have had much of a relationship then but i also was robbed of the opportunity to ever have a relationship so i want justice for her you know it took some time for her to really deal with the facts of the case but once she did you know, she came forward and she, she says, hey, I, I want justice, you know, not only for my grandmother, I want true justice for my grandmother and I want her, the perpetrators of her murder to be held accountable. But I want to see justice for Michael Chappell because he didn't kill my grandmother. And I thought that was just extremely powerful and extremely courageous. Yeah. And it's a testament as well, I think, to the fact that you know, so many people, uh, certainly in Imogene Thompson's family, have been provided this one narrative. This is what happened. This man's been arrested. He's been convicted. He's in prison. End of story. And I think for a lot of families, you feel that sense of closure from that. But the fact that uh, all the information that we've been able to access has been laid out as plainly as possible you know, and, and people like Paralee Goldman, for example, are able to hear this and hear these different sides presented and hear information that they, they didn't know, they were not aware of previously, you know, and then come back and say, well, I don't believe what I've been told. I mean, that's, that's very powerful. We got a lot more. We're going to come back in another episode. There's a lot more that's happened since the end of the podcast. So... Stick around and we'll see you there. In the Land of Lies is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and performed the original music score. Story editor is Jason Hoke, and executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Sound engineering by Shane Freeman. Creative producer is Henry Ball. And you can find Henry's book, Michael Chapel, at storiedpress.store. For updates about this and all of my podcasts, follow me on social media at Sean Kipe. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave a review. And as always, 
Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.